Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the text we're going to read today has a lot of ramifications. I don't say this every week. Every week the texts are over my head, and in some weeks they're really over my head, and such is the case this week. My battle all week has been, Lord, how can I make this sound real simple and plain because the goal is never to make God's Word sound complicated. It's understandable is the goal. And I really had to wrestle with this. Almost split it, but about 7 o'clock Thursday night, decided let's go ahead and just do it all in one setting. And so we'll see how this goes. So, so much here as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says the following to his disciples. You ready? Your mind ready? Here we go. Jesus. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right off the bat, there's some folks here this morning, you, you may need to be like checking yourself like, law? We don't need the law. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Hmm. For truly, like truly, truly, he's adding extra weight. I say to you, like the amen, so be it. What I'm about to tell you is going to happen. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, some of the people I read this week think that that's Jesus' way of saying something that will never happen. I don't think that's what it is. I know the New Testament alludes to, the, and it's alluded to in the Old Testament. This earth and the current version of the heavens and heaven will go away. I think Jesus is not talking about something that will never happen. I think he's talking about something that absolutely will happen but hasn't yet. Verse 18 again. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, so he's talking about the law and the prophets, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You think I'm against the law? I'm not against the law. It's going to happen. Verse 19 starts with the word therefore, which means it's playing off of what's been presented in verse 17 and 18. This is heavy. Slaps a lot of us right in the face here. We've got to evaluate our theology. This is Jesus. Therefore, and I've never seen this until I read it this way in the ESV, and I think this really does get across the point. This is a really good translation here. Jesus says, therefore... Based on 17 and 18, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. What do you mean these commandments? The law and the prophets. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I know which category I want to be in that. Where do you want to be? And in verse 20, this is the real doozy. Jesus says, for I tell you, this time he doesn't qualify it with, with um, truly, but still the same way. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I've wrestled with that all week. Not all week. I wrestled with that Wednesday, Thursday, and since. 
Christ says some amazing things. We've looked at them. You remember what he said? You want, those who have, you want to know those who have the good life? They're those who are poor in spirit. They're those who mourn over their sinfulness. They're the meek. They're the ones. You don't know who has the good life. They're the ones whose lives will result in them being persecuted. They're blessed. Okay, that's really weird. That's pretty astounding to this audience. But I'm going to tell you what he says in verse 20 is way more astounding to what his hearers heard that day. What? Did he just say what I think he says? So he introduces in verse 17 the law. So catch what I'm about to say. In that day, the Jews, the audience that he would be speaking to, when they hear the law, that could refer to one of four things. It could refer literally to as focused as the Ten Commandments. They would refer to, you've broken the law, the Ten. Or it could refer to the first five books of the Bible. To any Jew, the first five books of the Bible. Now that's the key part of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy. Moses' writings, they would call that the law. You've got the Ten Commandments as the law, then the writings, the Pentateuch. But then they would also use the law at times to refer to the whole of their Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Didn't have the New Testament. Most Jews don't accept the New, the New Testament. So they would call the whole of it sometimes the law. But then there's this fourth one, unfortunately, that the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees started formulating these oral traditions based on the laws. It's like the laws were broad, and principles not specific enough, so they decided that God apparently didn't finish the job and it's up to us. We need to formulate specific rules, and I mean by the thousands. And at the time of Christ, they were still oral. A couple of hundred years after Christ, they write them down in what's called the Mishnah. But a lot of, a lot of Jews would hear the law, and they would say, oh, that's the writings, the old what we call the Old Testament, but it also includes the oral traditions. Jesus and Paul never included that. In fact, they put those down. They are not for those. They are against those, despised those, those man-made. And so what Christ does in verse 17, one of which of the four he's talking about, there's no doubt when he says the law and the prophets, listen, here's what he's saying, the entirety of the Old Testament. That's what Christ is talking about today. Now, second thought before we get into our kind of main thoughts this morning, just by way of introduction, what is Jesus doing in verse number 17? He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I think what Christ is doing, he's saying, you're going to hear some things about me. My teaching and my actions are going to result in you hearing accusations about me that I am breaking the Sabbath laws. He didn't, but you're going to hear me be accused of breaking the Sabbath. You're going to hear my followers and I, my close followers, we're going to be accused of breaking the dietary laws. They're breaking the hand-washing laws, though he didn't. You're going to, Christ is, in essence, warning them. He's preparing them. You're going to hear that I am against the law because they're going to call me a friend of sinners because I spend time with people who obviously are living exactly the opposite to the law. I don't shun them. I go live near them. I spend time with them. I talk with them. I even eat with them. And so they're going to say I'm against the law because I'm a friend of sinners. They're going to accuse me of being against the law because he's going to claim equality with God. Don't you believe it? I'm not abolishing the law. So four things we want to notice in our points this morning. Not every week, but this morning they fall very neatly by each verse. I think if we've, if we've accurately divided the scriptures today and you need to be in prayer, Holy Spirit, tell us where what the preacher's saying is accurate and tell us what the, what the preacher's saying is inaccurate 
And But we want to stay to the text. First thing we notice this morning, Christ fulfills the law. It's very clear, verse number 17, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. This section is going to be very teachy, I admit it, but I hope you will hear it. You say, I've heard this before, but we need to remind ourselves of what Christ is teaching. Look at verse 17 again. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see those first three words, do not think. They're stronger than what I've, what I've said. Literally what they mean is this. Here's what Christ is saying. Do not think for even a minute that I, don't even think for a minute, no matter what, you, what they say or what you think I'm doing or what I'm teaching, don't ever think for even one moment that I am against the law and the prophets. I'm not. Christ never broke any of the Old Testament laws. He couldn't. He is God. As God, it's His laws. The law of God reflects the nature of God. It reflects the nature of Jesus Christ. He would be going against His own nature to break the law. So He never breaks the laws, any of them. They're Him. They're His laws. They point to Him. In fact, what He says is, I fulfill them. This is key. Jesus does not say, I didn't come to abolish and destroy like you would destroy a building. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to do the law. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I came to obey the law. That's not what he says. He says, I came to fulfill the law. A much stronger, say, you and I can obey some laws, but we don't fulfill the law. Christ says, I fulfill the law. I am not opposed to it. To it. I do not abolish or destroy it. I actually fulfill. Some scholars have actually noted some 300 ways that Jesus Christ in his life and teachings fulfilled the Old Testament laws. And so I want to spend the rest of our day going over the 300. No, I'm kidding. We're not doing that because this is only the first point. Can I fly through 24, 25 of them? Fly through? Here we go. The Old Testament law predicted that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, would be a descendant of Abraham. Check. He would be a descendant of Jacob. Check. Because Abraham has other kids. Isaac, Esau, has to be Isaac's line. Jacob. And then out of Jacob, well, he's got lots of sons. It has to be the tribe of Judah. Check. And then 800 years, eight, 900 years later, it's found out that the Messiah, the Christ... The Savior would be a descendant of King David. Check, 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 check. There went four, just like that. He would be human if you go back to Genesis chapter 3. He would be a male if you go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now we've got six. Check, check, check. I don't think anyone in here this morning is any, hits, hits all of those. I'm like 0 for 4 on the ones that I gave about being a descendant. But it goes more. You say, Jeff, there's still thousands of people who fit those categories. True, but we're about to narrow down the 20, 40, 60, even 80 potential billions of people who've ever lived in the history of the world. We're now going to narrow it down to one. Because the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah Christ Savior would be born of a virgin girl. Now you're down to one human being. You say, this is biologically impossible. I know, but with God, all things are possible, and God pulls off the impossible. Jesus was born of a virgin. But listen, if he were born of a virgin, but born in Hebron, or in Jerusalem, or up in Syria, or Mesopotamia, over in Babylon, or down in Egypt, then we need to look for another person, because that would not be him. I don't know how that happened, born of a virgin. Has to be born in Bethlehem. Check, check. 
He must be heralded by a forerunner. How many of us have someone going before us? Hear ye, hear ye. They're getting out of the car. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God. And then you walk. I don't have a forerunner. Jesus did. Check. He had to have the power to perform miracles. I don't. None of us do. Christ had that. I'm going to give you seven. I'm going to make a sentence, and it's going to be seven. You're going to say, it doesn't sound like seven. It's seven. The Old Testament predicted, and Christ's life fulfilled this prophecy that he would be betrayed by a familiar friend for 30 pieces of silver that would actually not stay with the betrayer. They would be cast down in the temple, and then the priest would take the forsaken money on the temple floor, gather it up, and use it to buy a potter's field. You say, that sounds like a great prophecy. No, that is seven prophecies. Betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver thrown down in the temple that was used to purchase a potter's field where Judas himself was actually buried after he hanged himself. He would be beaten and spat upon. Some of you would say, I've had somebody spit on me before. Great, you're now about one for 21. Some of you say, yeah, well, if you knew my dad, when I was growing up, I was beaten. Okay, maybe you're two for 22. Christ fulfills them all, but here's where he leaves us in the dust. The Old Testament predicted and his life fulfilled, he must be crucified. It's called piercing his hands and the feet. The Old Testament did not call it crucifixion. It wasn't called that. But the psalmist predicted that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced. We know his side was pierced. While he was on the cross, he was naked. His garments, here comes two more. His garments were divided. And they were gambled for. Which, which is it? Divided or gambled? Both. They were divided, but there was one that was special. They all wanted it. And so they cast lots. And one of them got his special robe. While on a cross, his bones, as predicted, were exposed. He could see them. I don't know if that means seeing through skin or if that means because of the beating. He could literally see his bones. Also, his bones are out of joint, but also his bones were not broken. Thief on that side and the thief on this side were, had, they had their legs broken. Also, it was predicted that not only would he be crucified, he would be crucified among transgressors, among thieves. Check, 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 check. Christ says, it's going to happen. I fulfill the law. And then it says he would be buried, not thrown in a mass grave, but in a tomb of a rich man, and that he would resurrect. Christ checks all the boxes. No one in the history of the world checks all the boxes. If you're taking notes... Second note this morning is this. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in multiple ways. Would you join me? Go to second, hold your spot here, obviously. Second Corinthians. Go to Second Corinthians. I want you to remember this verse because of the end of the message today. Second Corinthians. It's a verse we use quite often, but I want you to see. How did Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? In multiple ways. Verse number 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A familiar verse. But let's read it again. Notice what it says. For our sake, he, that pronouns God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. See that? God the Father made God the Son to be sin. Who knew no sin. So Here's the part I want you to remember for later. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him... We might become the righteousness of God, because we sure don't have any. But the main thing I want you to catch right now is, God the Father made God the Son to be sin, but God the Son knew no sin. What that means is, 
that Christ fulfilled the law's moral demands. He did all the do's, and he didn't do any of the don'ts. You, I didn't know the song that was going to be picked this morning. The very opening song, I will love the Lord, my, Lord our God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. That's the greatest commandment. Christ is the only person in the history of the world who fulfills the requirement of love toward God and of love toward man. He fulfills the moral requirements. By the way, I cheat when I sing that song. Just so you know, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I have a hard time singing that and like, hey, Lord, I'm going to, implying from now on. So I kind of forward it a little bit, and Lord, the day will come when I will love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And I'm really trying hard to do it right now but I'm not promising I'll be doing it all day long because that would be a lie. Sorry, I just ruined that song for you guys. But anyway, it's Jesus did this. He fulfilled the law. Go to Acts chapter six, uh, 13. Acts chapter 13, flip over there. How did Christ fulfill the law? So now we have Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey. They come up into what we call Asia, what we call Turkey. It was Asia Minor, and he comes to a little town called Antioch. And he shares the gospel in a synagogue. And I don't know if there were that many, as many people there on that Saturday morning as there are here today. Maybe more, maybe less. But at one point, they realize they've got a couple of experts, apparently some, from, some rabbis up from Jerusalem, and they very wisely yield the floor to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul does the speaking. Look at verse 26. So he's in a Jewish synagogue on a Saturday. Here's what Paul preaches. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. So he's talking to Jews. Watch what he says. And those among you who fear God. So the Gentiles who were checking out Judaism, they would sit at the back of the building. They couldn't really sit at the front. Kind of reverse back there. In Baptist churches, usually the prime real estate's at the back. Uh, but in their day, the prime real estate was in the front. And the God-fearers, the seekers, they're at the back. Look what Paul says. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. To us, they didn't know this. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have Christian radio or Christian television. So he has to go out. He's the first one to reach this area with this piece of news. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's just been talking before about how the Savior is going to come and it was going to be a descendant of David. Watch what he says in verse 27 to his audience 2,000 years ago. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. Catch verse 27. It's very important. For those who live in Jerusalem, Paul says, and their rulers, here's the reason, because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets. Oh, I guess they didn't read their Bible. No, it wasn't for lack of reading. He says, which are read every Sabbath. They just read it there. The Jews always read out of the law and the prophets. They read them all the time, but they missed it. He says, because they didn't know, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, that doesn't stop them. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when, verse 29 is key, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, things that I just said a while ago. Some of these things, the Jews literally were checking them off the list with the help of the Roman Empire and their soldiers. They're going down through there, piercing hands and feet, dividing the clothes, gambling for the clothes, beating him, spitting on one by one by one. Joseph of Arimathea, rich man, says, can I please have the body? I want to bury him over here. They're, just, they're filling, fulfilling them one by one. They have no clue what they're doing. The point being, how does Christ fulfill 
He fulfills all the prophecies of a dying Savior. Make your way, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, another pretty familiar verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. One little phrase. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Did you catch it? Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death. So the law demands a payment for sin. Christ becomes the payment for sin. The law demands punishment for sin. Christ fulfills the demand of punishment for sin. You're in 1 Peter. Go back. We're going to hit about eight verses, so you definitely want to go look at this with your own eyes. If you have your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 10. How does Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? Particularly this time, we're going to focus on the law. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Told you this would be very teachy in its orientation at this point. Here we go. Hebrews 10, the writer says to the Hebrew nation, For since the law... Now here he's not talking about all parts of the law. He's not talking about the civil part of the law that ran the nation of Israel. He's not even talking about the moral part of the law, that it's about morality, the do's and the don'ts. He's specifically talking about the ceremonial part of the law, the offerings and the sacrifices. Look at verse 1 again. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. What are the good things to come? Christ. So for 1,500 years, they're doing these sacrifices. And the Hebrew writer, now after Christ has died on the cross and resurrected, probably some 30, 40 years after that, 35 years maybe, he says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It's only a shadow. A shadow is not the real. It's a semblance of the real. He says, since it only had a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law, the ceremonial law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. If it was really removing the sin, then it should have been able to stop. There, we killed some animals. You happy? But it, that's not how it happened. Every year, verse 3. Actually, what happens, it's not a, a cleansing of the conscience, a once and for all. Verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Dad, how can we have to go back again? Buddy, our sins are not covered. Our sins are not covered. That's last year. We have to keep going. We have to get the, the priest to offer more sacrifices. So verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So is there any hope? Skip to verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. Not only every year, but the Bible says every priest stands. Notice the, con the contrast here. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly. He stands daily repeatedly same sacrifices over and over and over he's not making fun of it he's just pointing out this can't be the permanent thing this is not what it was all pointing to he says which can never take away sins daily he's standing repeatedly never takes away the sin it puts a covering on sin but when christ who fulfills the law when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God, of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool at his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected. Not just covering sins, he's perfected. For all time, those who are being sanctified. How does Christ fulfill the law? He fulfills the moral demands and the requirement of love. He fulfills the call for a punishment for sin. He fulfills all the prophecies of a dying Savior. But this passage makes it very clear. He accomplished once and for all what the ceremonial law was pointing to in types and shadows and copies. These animal sacrifices were shadows and copies and types of what Jesus Christ would really do. And when he came, he did it once and for all. And he knows exactly what's going on. And so as we hear that, we make our way back to Matthew 5. You say, Jeff, so I guess Jesus has fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament. Not all of them. You say there's more? Listen, listen. At his second coming, when he lifts the curse... When he evaluates and judges the saints at what's called the judgment seat of Christ. And then when he reigns literally for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. And then after that when he judges all the lost people at the great white throne judgment. Then Christ will have fulfilled all. 300 already, some more to come. Everything is right on schedule. When God says something, it is going to happen. And Christ says, I am the one who fulfills the law. Secondly, this morning. Christ exalts the law and the prophets. He says, I fulfill them. And now in verse number 18, Jesus exalts the law and the prophets. Look at verse 18 again. Look at it again. For truly, I say to you, I didn't come to destroy. I came to fulfill. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. It's coming. But till that time, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Raise your hand if you already know what an iota and a dot means. Raise your hand if you already know what that means. I know a lot of you do. In the King James I grew up on, it was called not a jot or a tittle. If you go back to Psalm 119, it's broken down into these little eight-section verses, and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. If you have one of those Bibles, not now but later, Go look up the one. If you can find where it has the letters Y-O-D, Yod, you'll see that that's the, the smallest Hebrew letter. And that's what Christ is saying here. And iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest of the small. So then what in the world is this dot or this tittle that, as it's called in the King James? That's not the smallest letter. That's the smallest little pin stroke that is a part of a letter. Say, so what does this mean? See, we here at Graceview believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture. Scripture means the writings. We apply this to the New Testament and to the Old. It's the writings of God. You say, what do these other words mean? We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration. Inspiration, we believe that plenary inspiration means all of the Bible is the inspired, spoken Word of God in its original writings. Yes, God used 40 human authors, but God is the one who spoke out. I'm not talking about every copy that's ever been made. I'm not talking about every translation that's ever been made. But I'm saying when God spoke these books into existence, it's literally the words of God, and all of it is inspired. All of it's the word of God, and that's why all of it is accurate. All of it is authoritative. Some other books may be accurate, but they're not completely authoritative. The word of God is. We believe in the verbal plenary, which means... Jeff, you believe that the, the concepts and ideas of the Bible are true? I absolutely do. 
But I believe in more than the concepts and ideas. I believe every word that makes the concepts were inspired by God. They're his words, all of them, spoken out by God. You say, that is great. Every word God spoke is his word. It's all authoritative. It's all accurate. And it's all going to be fulfilled. That's the point Christ is making. No. That's not the point Christ is making. Christ is not saying every word. He's saying every letter within every word. Down to tenses of verbs. Every word matters. What about the little tiniest letter? Like the little I. It's all going to be fulfilled. It is all significant. But what about this little stroke? All of it is going to be fulfilled. And Christ is saying, I'm the one who fulfills it all. Until heaven and earth pass, it's going to all be fulfilled. So he's taking it much greater than verbal inspiration. He goes stronger. So listen, even the part you think is not that significant, Christ is saying it is extremely important. I'll not tell you the name. I shared it with Brother Henry this morning. Seven or eight years ago here in town, I was at a large church that had a conference during the week. And they had a nationally prominent pastor who does a lot of great things, so I'm not putting him in a category of a heretic. But I'm not joking. I was sitting there, my jaw dropped. I really had a problem. I lost respect for him that day. I've heard him reiterate this since. He was, in essence, had a room full of preachers and teachers and hundreds of us, and had other speakers, but this particular speaker stood up and discouraged us from using the Old Testament in our preaching. He told how that in his church he doesn't really do it. He really, just, he really tries to stay away because it just confuses modern audiences, and so he sticks it to the teaching of Jesus and some other parts of the New Testament. By the way, they get a lot of converts down there below us. But I'm not a fan of his comment. I'm not a fan of his theory. Christ is saying that the Old Testament is still the Word of God, is it's still extremely important, it still serves a great purpose. The Old Testament still shows us the heart of God. The Old Testament still shows us the character of God. The Old Testament does some things that the New Testament can't do as well as the Old Testament. Like why? The Old Testament, what I have found, is the best revealer of our sin nature. You have to have that. It's the best revealer of our sin nature and thus of our need for a Savior. I mean, the Old Testament, when I put my, my life against the expectations of the law of God, I become really desperate for a Savior. And so what I do, and I would encourage you to do the same, I'm going to say the opposite of what he said. When you're trying to win a soul to Christ and you're trying to, to show someone their great need of Christ, go to the Old Testament. Take them to the law. Take them particularly to the Ten Commandments. I know nothing as effective as the Ten Commandments to bring necessary conviction and urgency. Hey, the good news of the gospel of the New Testament is awesome, but we don't become real urgent until we realize, whoa, I have broken that and that and that, and I'm in huge trouble and God will punish my sin. Yes, now you ready to hear some good news? The bad news has to come before the good news. That's not all that the law does, but it does that better than anything else in the Word of God. Christ exalts the law. He doesn't discard. And so if you're a Christian this morning like, yeah, I don't really have a lot of time for the Old Testament, you need to update your theology. Now just before I leave this, I'm going to hit one more paragraph, but it's important. Don't take wrong what I'm about to say, but verse 17 and 18, watch. They're definitely about the primacy of the law. Christ is exalting the law. 
So he is showing the primacy of the law. But watch. Verse 17 and 18 is even more about Jesus. Yes, the law is way up there. The law, the Old Testament is above us. We live under all of the Word of God. We're under the Word of God. But what Christ is trying to show is that though the law is elevated, Christ is greater than the law. The law and the prophets pointed to him all along. The reason he's so confident, absolutely, I'm going to fulfill the law and the prophets. Why can you say that? Because it's been about me the whole time. The whole time it's always been about Christ. The law is great. And the law is God's word. But Christ is greater. Now that has two very important ramifications. I'm planting a seed this morning that's going to affect the next six times I preach on Sunday morning. Say, what is it? Here comes. Because the word is great, but the word, it's over us. I'm talking New Testament old alike. The word is over us, but the word is not above the God who spoke it. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture, and it's accurate and authoritative and all of those things. But guys, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. The God who spoke the word is greater than the Bible. Okay, Jeff, what does this mean? That means because Jesus is greater than the law, he said, I'm exalting the law, but the law exalts me. What he's saying is, I have authority to interpret the law. I have authority to determine the usage and the continuity of the law and how it is used moving forward. So are we still under these dietary laws? As we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to find out that Jesus is going to lay the groundwork and the theology that no, we are not under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. You're free to have them. You'll be healthier for it. But we are not demanded to be under that. Why? Where does he get off? Because Christ is above the law. He determines its continuity. He rightly interprets. By the way, those of you who have your Bible open, Matthew 5, I don't know how your Bible is laid out, but you may have like six sections from now to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 21. You kind of see, some of you see little headings. Yeah, that's Christ saying, here's what you've heard, and here's what it means. Now back to chapter 5, verse 19. Look at that quickly. Look at verse 19. We're going to say this third point. Here we go. Therefore, so Christ has exalted the law, though he's above it. But now he continues to exalt. Watch what he says. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, because it's going to be done, every iota, every dot. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, those aren't the big ones. Those are kind of small. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Number three this morning, Jesus preserves the law and the prophets. Jesus preserves the law and the prophets. As soon as that's written, can we have Ephesians chapter 2 on the screen? If you want to join me there, that's fine. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8. Very, very familiar. First two verses. But I want to make a point out of verse 10. Jesus is preserving the law. And from here on, you're like, Jeff, has not been the simplest message. Well, it's about to get more complicated. Okay? Just telling you. Third and fourth point. Here we go. For by grace, verse 8, 
Every Christian knows this. If you're a Christian, you, you should know this. For by grace, that means here, here's a gift. What do I have to do? Just take it. Have you ever done that? If you're saved today, it was by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, you had to believe. God says he'll save me just as a gift through the death of Christ on the cross. I did that when I was nine. Had seven or eight kids in one sitting a week and a half ago do this in Kentucky. Very simple. God gives it away. They took it up. They take, took him up on the offer. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. You don't do anything to get saved. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. I'm going to work. I'm going to keep the law. No, not a result of works. Not a result of keeping the law so that no one may boast. Oh, so we're not saved by works, right? Not saved by works. Can't be. It's by grace. But verse 10 is very clear. For we are his workmanship, so it's not our works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's the salvation. For good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're created for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jeff, what's your point? God's created us for good works. For 2,000 years, I don't want us to be this. For 2,000 years, many, many te teachers in the name of Christianity have promoted a false teaching, a false narrative. They subtly give it, it goes something like this. In the Old Testament, God was really strict and he was really angry and, and he was kind of tough. But something apparently happened between Old Testament and New Testament. God's all of a sudden, he's real chill now. God's mellowed out. And so God's not that concerned now because it's all about grace. Over here is law. You better do or this is going to happen. New Testament, hey, y'all don't worry about the law. It's grace. Everything's free. Jesus did it all. That is all true. But the conclusion they draw is this. Here's where it's wrong. God doesn't really care about the lives of his people. He don't care what kind of life you live. God's okay. So if your life goes completely against the teachings of the Old Testament or the imperatives of the New, it doesn't really matter. You're under this big umbrella of grace. Guys, that is heresy. That is wrong. God saved us for his glory. Listen, Jesus is so serious that the law be upheld. You say, Jeff, are you like undoing everything you said in the book of Romans? Nope, not at all. Or is, does Paul conflict with what Jesus says? Does Paul in Romans and Galatians conflict with what Jesus is teaching here? Nope, not at all. The law serves a purpose. The law still reveals the heart of God. I'm going to give you a little hint. Christian, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to break any of the Old Testament laws of God. Never will he do that. He is one Lord. It's all one unit. So here's our point. Christ in verse number 19 is so serious that the law be upheld. This is key. He's going to spend the remainder of this chapter 5, the next 28 verses, going over six areas that the Jews and the teachers had wrongly relaxed the true meaning of the law. He is so serious, it, literally this is going to flow right in. If we had like three hours, we would flow right into these next 28 verses, but we can't. So here's what Christ is saying. It's all going to be fulfilled, every iota, every dot. Don't relax it. Don't relax them. And then he's going to hit these six targets. Watch. Anger. Lust. Divorce. Oaths. Swearing. Retaliation. And recipients of love. Jeff, what does that mean? Anger. Here it is. You ever done this? 
a brother or sister in Christ makes you angry? Ah, I cannot, there, oh, I am just so, or a group of brothers and sisters in Christ have made you, they just, oh, I just, they're making me, I, I'm not going to kill them, but I wouldn't mind them being, I'm just so, look out, look out, there is righteous indignation, most of the time what we think is righteous indignation at its core and at its root is us, me, my way, Christ is going to say, you've heard, Here's what I say. You're out of line when you're angry at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Very rarely is it righteous indignation. Really peel away. What was making you so mad? I, I, I want to talk about them. I want to run them down. You're out of line. Lust. Hey, I never touched her. We didn't have sex, but it's in your heart. Careful, Christ is going to set us straight. Divorce. Well, she didn't do that, and she did that. He doesn't do those things, and he did that. And so I got a careful, and I already know. By the way, I made up my mind a long time ago, we're going to let the Bible be the Bible, and so I'll have to get up here because a lot, God's led us to Matthew, and I'm going to say some things in the coming week that I'm just going to let the text say what it says, and we're going to try to rightly divide the Word of God. I don't know fully where it's going to go in all of these areas. Oaths, but they weren't listening, so I had to say some words to get them to know that I meant business. You're probably out of line. Stick a needle in my eye. I hope to die on my mother's grave. Yeah, stop doing that. Retaliation. You do that, then you're going to get that. Love, yeah. I love my family. I love a church family. I love my friends. Everybody else, I don't care about them. And them, I hate them. The law says, and Jesus is going to come along and say, yeah, well, I'm over the law. So be careful. Romans 6, chapter 1, because this is a passage that came to my mind during the week. Jesus is preserving the law and the prophets. Look at Romans 6. So here's the setting, real quick. Here's the setting. So for thousands of years, mankind is sinning. Then God introduces the law of Moses in 1500 B.C. Now we'll stop sinning? Nope. We didn't stop sinning. Mankind didn't stop sinning. All that happens is now we know more how to define sin. We're going to keep on sinning. And so what happens is the amount of sin increased. We didn't stop. We kept living the same lives. And even more so now, it's rebellion against revealed revelation. Now we know that God doesn't like that. Coveting and that, that's wrong. Not going to stop. We keep doing it. So the sin increases. But Paul, right in chapter 5, says, God's grace is so awesome that even when our sin increased, grace increased the needed amount and grace overcame even all of our sin and God is glorified for being a gracious God. And so some people hear that and they come up with this wacky idea then what we need to do since God's grace is glorified and that's one of the main reasons that he saved us according to Ephesians chapter 1, then we need to sin more so that God's grace will grow even more and his glory for being a gracious God will increase even more. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Paul is the great proponent of grace. Look what he says. Are we Christians to continue in sin? What is sin? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible says in the King James very clearly, sin is the transgression of the law. ESV says sin is lawlessness, acting like there is no law. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Paul's answer is by no means. No, 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 a thousand times no. Where'd you get that wacky idea? Because we can. Grace, grace, grace. We can live any way we want. Not going to lose our salvation. That is not God leading you to do that. Are you even a Christian thinking that way? Are you sure you're a Christian? Verse 2. Why am I yelling so much, by the way? Sorry. I just get like, ah, we've got to get all this teaching at one time and we've got to get our right thinking. Verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin, lawlessness, transgressing the law? We died to that lifestyle. How can we still live in it? Yes, we, we commit acts of sin, but we don't have that as a lifestyle. That's not a Christian. Many of you have heard this word. I'm going to throw it out. It's not that important that you remember the word, but I want to refute the idea. You ready? Here we go. Some of you are like, I've never heard that word in my life. It's fine. It's a man-made word. It's not in the Bible. Antinomianism. Antinomian. Law. Anti-law. R.C. Sproul helps us here. He says that anti listen, and we'll write it in a moment. Listen first. Antinomianism is the belief that the Old Testament law has no claim on the New Testament Christian because it's been supplanted by the greatness of the gospel. There's the law. Out with the law. We don't need you anymore. In with grace. In with the gospel. We get to live any way we want. Paul says, don't ever think that. Jesus says, are you really relaxing? This part doesn't seem that significant. So I'm just going to relax my belief in that part. Don't do it. By the way, now I'm going to start emphasizing this. We never try to keep the law to go to heaven. But a Christian knows... The psalmist says, I love thy law. I delight in thy law. The person who delights in the law of God is the blessed person. They're like a tree planted by the rivers of water. They don't just like lock in New Testament only. I'm always going to have my devotions in the New Testament. No, this year I'm going through the Old Testament. I'm getting fed from it. I love the New Testament. I'm frankly be honest with you. I like the New Testament better. I'm sorry. Why did I just say that? I shouldn't have. I wasn't planning on saying that. I hope I don't. Re- if I end up regretting that then we'll edit that tomorrow but I, I love the new testament i need the old testament i need the old david has just been he's on a roller coaster too so he's like me only like on steroids the way he lived anyway i don't know where i'm going romans 7 don't turn there don't turn there make a mental note romans 7 verse 12 romans 7 22 romans 7 25 listen Paul makes it very clear in a chapter trying to show us what is the relation of the Christian and the law. He makes it very clear. Listen, the law, the Old Testament law and the prophets are holy, righteous, and good. And a Christian delights in his inner being in the law of God. But then, this is so key, in chapter 8, if you flow right on in, chapter 725 flows right into 8.1. You say, Jeff, I thought we were free from the law. Watch. He shows how we're free from the law's penalty of sin, which requires death. We're free from that. We're not condemned. Jesus took all of our death. Oh, so I can live any way I want. No, actually what happens by the time you get to chapter 8, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, he tells us how the Holy Spirit comes in us. And the Holy Spirit, back in chapter 5 of Romans, pours the love of God in us so that now we love God and we love other people and now all of a sudden we find ourselves fulfilling the law way more than we ever could on our own and that's where we're going to finish in just a moment. Romans 9. 
Rome, I'm sorry, Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Flip back over there. Go there quickly. Got to hurry. Matthew 5. Read verse 19 one more time. One more time. Here we go. Therefore, whoever relaxes. Well, this is, this is like before Jesus died on the cross. This surely doesn't apply after his resurrection and after Pentecost in Acts 2 in the church. Yes, it still applies. Verse 19, he says, till heaven and earth passes away. Verse 19, therefore, based off verse 18, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's my statement. Last little paragraph on this point, and then we'll hit the fourth one quickly. Ready? This isn't the only passage. I'm not going to die for this belief, but I, I believe in this firmly. I think it's Peter alludes to it, other places. Paul, there will be ranks in the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to be over higher ranked than others. Some of you will be lower ranked, and some of you will be higher ranked. So what's this based on? The ranks will be based on how each person lived in obedience to the true meaning of God's commands and how they taught other people to do the same. We're not talking about working and keeping the law to go to heaven. Remember this and take it home and study it. Everybody in verse number 19 is in the kingdom. They're all in the kingdom. It's just some are less, least, lesser, and some are great, greater. So what's the determining factor? How did you keep even the minuscule what seemingly in, insignificant parts? Did you relax the parts that kind of helped you live a certain life? Very important what I'm about to say. As you come, so you say, oh, I'm going to check. What are these categories? What are those six things Jeff said? Oh, what if he's going to be gone any weeks? Because that one section, I want to make sure I'm not here the week that he talks about that. Okay, you do that? God straighten you out if you do that. As you hear, not mine, but we're going to try to find what is the Lord teaching. Listen carefully. As you hear the true interpretation of these six areas, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and who is supposed to receive our love, as you hear that, please, Christian, do not in your mind water down what Jesus says because you love your lifestyle. But I like my life right now. I'm going to promise you what Christ is telling us when you get to eternity, these little lives are so short. It's like nothing. But that is all based on this. That is based on this. You like candy? Yeah, I like candy. You want a piece of candy? Yeah. What if I don't give you a piece of candy? If you wait just a little bit, you get like a candy factory. I'll take the candy factory. So when you hear this teaching of Jesus, please don't go, but that really gets into my lifestyle. And I don't, I don't I, I, or here's the cop out. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. I can't help it. I got it from my mom and my daddy and my grand. Stop it. When Jesus says something, line your life up or you will regret it in eternity. You say, well, we still go to heaven. Absolutely. You don't lose your salvation. You're going to be lesser. You want to be less? It matters then. You, you will care then. My job is to remind you, you're going to care. And so let's line up. I don't know where we're going in these things, but when we get there, let's line up with what we hear. Let Jesus straighten us out quickly, number four. Jesus foreshadows his grace. So he fulfills the law, he exalts the law, he preserves the law, and then Jesus foreshadows his grace. Verse 20. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Go ahead and relax on the lesser commands. You'll be least in the kingdom. But if you're not more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, you don't even enter the kingdom. What? Yeah. Lesser those parts you don't like as a Christian. You'll regret it. You'll be lesser. But if you're not more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, then you don't even enter the kingdom. What's this about? Christian, don't relax the commands, but hear me. Don't, don't relax the commands, but don't attempt to go to heaven by keeping the commands. You've got to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Jeff, it sounds like you're not talking about what Jesus is talking about. It sounds like we've got to work harder. We've got to really try harder. Don't you try to go to heaven by keeping the law. What do I mean? Back to Sproul. He, he balances his earlier quote. He writes the following. Listen. The opposite error of antinomianism. Antinomianism, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. The opposite of antinomianism is legalism. What is that? So you got one, we don't need the law now that we're saved, but watch this. Legalism. People who think they can get to heaven by obeying the law have deceived themselves. There's somebody sitting here this morning. I just know it. Who is? I don't know, but I guarantee they're sitting here. They're watching right now. They, in their mind, I'm trying to be good. I read my Bible, and when I find things, I try to do it. I think I'm doing better than most. I've lived pretty good most of my life. i got my faults, but I'm better than everybody else. If that's your mindset, you're on your way to hell, I'm telling you. Biblically speaking, you are on your way to hell if that thought is anywhere in your thinking. Okay, no, 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 I'm trusting Christ, but I'm also doing my part. You're on your way to hell if that is your mentality. You've got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Boy, I wish I had time. The print's way too small and it would take too long. Is Brother Bill Vickery here today? Did you read Barclay this week? It, it, go reread it. It's, it's amazing. I don't endorse everything William Barclay says, but boy, this week he threw some stuff out. I don't have time. God, listen. He throws an astounding summary of the ridiculous oral traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees. What he says is the law of God is these broad, great principles. What he wrote, I mean, it was like, almost, it was like so well written. Awesome. It's on page 123 to 126, by the way. He talks about these great, broad principles. But the Jews knew that, okay, that's the, word, that's the mind of God on it, and God's written it. But if things are not explicitly spelled out, then it's implied. And so what they need to do is, they felt like that humanly, we need to like spell out what God meant. He uses the classic example. The oral tradition of the day that was passed down generation to generation, one area was the Sabbath. So God, honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. No work is to be done on the Sabbath. Okay, there's a broad principle. God, where's the specifics? God doesn't give any. So the scribes say, we've got to come up with the specifics to tell the people what that means. And they started doing these, and they elevated them to be equal or even greater so that people are going around saying, we've got to keep the scribes' list of rules. And so breaking the Sabbath means carrying a burden, maybe writing something or healing someone if you're a physician. 
Well, now that needs to be broke down. What is carrying a burden? Guys, they literally came up with lists of things. If if you carry something that is heavier than a dried fig or that is heavier than um, the amount of milk that you could swallow in one swallow or the amount of water that it would take to make an eye salve or the amount of ink it would take to write two letters, not letter to grandma, letter to mom, A, B, two letters, to pick up a reed, that's too heavy. To break the Sabbath, they said, is to write. Literally, they would say, two letters. Now, you could write a letter on one wall and another wall, but not on the same wall. You could not write on the same tablet uh, two alphabet letters. You could write one on one page and not another, but if they're on the same page, you're wrong. Oh, by the way, here's a little exception. If you write in the sand or the dust, since it's not permanent, then you're not guilty. But if you write with ink or paint, then you're guilty. And y'all are thinking, now, where, where is... If you heal people on the Sabbath day, you can keep them from getting worse, but you can't take measures to improve them. You could put a bandage on something, but no medicine on the bandage. You could put gauze in the ear, but no ointment on the gauze in the ear. And you're like, where in the... They came up with thousands and thousands and thousands so that when written in English in the 200s, it made 800 pages called the Mishnah. And here are these scribes and Pharisees just working. And Jesus comes along, whap! You've got to be more righteous than them. Here's a key thought. You see the word exceeds? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You know what exceeds means? Not even close. Not even close. They're out here killing themselves with these lists. And Jesus is saying, these are my words. I don't care about their lists. Their lists have no love. Their lists have no faith. There's a principle in Scripture of modesty. If we made a rule that modesty is wearing light blue shirts, I could keep that. I could keep that. I picked that color on purpose today. All I got to do is always buy light blue shirts, but there's no love in that and there's no faith in that. But we've made ourselves a little rule. We took God's principle of modesty, and now we've got our little rules. And the Pharisees are keeping their rules, and they think eternal life is riding on it, and they're telling everybody that. And Jesus says, you better be more righteous than that. I mean so righteous, it's not even close. And now they hear that and think, then we have no chance. Jesus, what are you doing? I'm going to propose. Y'all take it home and think about it. I'm going to propose three reasons why Christ says this in verse 20. Number one, very quickly, he wants to show that the externals of the Pharisees and the scribes is really not holiness. It's not equal to holiness at all. God's concerned with the heart. They're just living checklist. God wants a whole lot more than rule keeping. Let me repeat that. Christians unsaved God wants more than rule keeping he wants your heart well we have a huge problem our heart's not really good and so that leads to the second reason why Christ gives this to number two to reveal our inability to meet the law's true demands Jesus why is he saying we got to like not even close we have to exceed the righteousness they're not nearly as righteous as they think they are and you shouldn't think they're holy and godly either they're not godly at all their heart's not in it they're just doing externals And oh, by the way, Lord, why do you saying this must exceed? Not even close. I'm trying to show you that you on your own can never keep the law. I've worn this illustration out. Musgrave gave it. Here it is. Ready? We're going to have a contest, and we're going to jump across the Grand Canyon. Here's the thing. It's eight miles. Eight miles. Mile deep. We're at the widest point. Eight miles. Listen. You, some of you will. I'm 49. I'll be 50 in January. Some of you will jump further than I can, but I'm going to promise you 
you're not even close. You may jump 26 feet out and I may jump 14 feet. Do you understand eight miles? 40 some thousand feet. 40 some thousand feet. Yeah, you jump 28. You're not even close. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23. Look at it on the screen. Look at it on the screen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody listen. What is this glory of God? It's God's standard of perfection. Perfection. Somebody in here, all your life, you've lived a little more morally. Somebody has lived the most moral in here. It's not me, by the way. Just giving you, just telling you. I don't know who she is. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It's not you. There's some little girl, young lady, older lady, and you've lived very morally. You've beat us. But perfection, you're not even close. You are so desperately in need of a Savior. So then what's Christ doing? That group, they're not holy. You, here's the expectation. Well, Lord, we've blown it. And that's why I use the title. What's Christ doing? He's foreshadowing His grace. Here's the third reason. If I had time, I would take you back to 2 Corinthians 5, and I would take you to Romans 8, 1 through 4 to prove these points. Jesus is saying that his followers will exceed the Pharisees. We will. If you're a follower of Christ, you already have exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees. How? I thought you said God demands perfection. The grace of God takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on every person who believes in Christ because Christ took all of our sin. That's the exchange. He takes all the sin. He pays for the penalty. And he says, I'm going to robe you in my righteousness. And it's a perfect righteousness. And you're close. You're beyond close. You're perfected. You're you're accepted by God. He loves you. You have access into heaven that can never be taken away. You're not just getting close. You are what's needed. You have all access to God that's equal to what I have. You have me. And then on top of it, you want to follow it up? It's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. God says His Holy Spirit comes inside believers and He causes us to love God and love other people. We don't perfectly start keeping the Old Testament law, but if we're following the Holy Spirit and loving people, we're not breaking the laws of God. We find ourselves doing things we don't even know are in the law. Later on we find out, wow, that's amazing. That's God's plan. And the kicker that I didn't have room because I ran out of space, when we get to heaven... We will forever perfectly, even in these bodies, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Christ is foreshadowing His grace and what His grace can do. And so here's my closing. I'm going to go fast. Are you ready? There's only two kinds of people. Only two. Based on verse 20, there are those who will enter the kingdom of God. Listen. And there are those who will spend eternity in hell paying for their own sins. That's the only two kinds of people. that They're in here right now. Both people are in this room. I'm in the group that will enter the kingdom of God because I've put my faith and trust in Christ. His death on the cross was enough to pay for all my sin. I've accepted it. God made these wild promises. I believed him as a nine-year-old. I've learned more what it means since then. But as a nine-year-old who didn't know all the facts, I knew enough that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I confess my sins, and I believed in Jesus' death on the cross. I am in the group, not because of me, 
But because of him that I'm in the group, I'll go into the kingdom. But there are people here this morning that you're going to spend. As of right now, the track you're on is to spend eternity in hell. You say, well, I don't think I deserve such things. Let me ask you just a brief question. Here we go. Answer in your head. Have you ever one day in your life loved anything or anyone more than you've loved God? Oh, I love God. Does your life show it? Have you every day of your life loved God more than you loved anyone else or anything else? Does your life prove it? The answer is no, you haven't. I want to ask you, have you ever one time taken the Lord's name in vain? So what does that mean? Have you ever said, oh my God, or good Lord, or Jesus Christ, ever one time? Oh Lord, ever one time in your life you've taken his name in vain. He will not hold you guiltless. Have you ever one time taken anything that wasn't yours? I told the kids in Kentucky. Have you ever taken a pen or a pencil when someone wasn't looking? A lot of poverty in Kentucky. Have you ever taken another kid's toy when you were in daycare? They're not looking or you're bigger and you can. You take it. Have you ever sat in class and you're sitting beside the smart girl and she writes the answer and that's not the answer you have? You didn't study. You know she always studied. I like your answer. I'm going to steal your answer. Have you ever done it once in your life? Have you ever lied? Ever. I mean big ones and I mean little white ones. Have you ever said I'm going to be there at 3 o'clock and you don't get there till 4.18? Then you lied. God never lies. Like, That's not fair. Perfection. The glory of God. You've come way, way short. Have you ever coveted? Man, I wished I had her hair or her complexion. I wished I had his car, his bank account. I wish I had their personality. I wish I had their parents and not my parents. Sin, 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 sin. You say, well, then there's no hope. God, listen, and I'm closing. God loved you so much that thousands of years ago, he wrote down in detail how his son was going to come to the earth and pay for all your sins. We looked at a few of them this morning. And then Jesus fulfilled it, saying that his salvation, his death on the cross, is enough to pay for all your sins. The point being, when God says something, it matters. It happens. God doesn't play games with his promises. I'm going to give you two promises. You've heard them. God, this is God's promise, and apparently when he says something, he means it. God says, I so love the world that I gave my son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You ever done that? Romans chapter 10, I love these verses. Romans 10, 18 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. This is God's promise. He means it when he says it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus you're not only the Lord, you are my Lord. I'm a sinner. God, I agree with you. You said I'm a sinner. I've broken everything that that preacher just said. I don't know who he is. I've broken them all, and I've done it many, many times. I may be better than them and better than them, but I'm not even close. I need a Savior. You said if I'll put my faith and trust in your son, I confess I need him, and I'm going to believe him at this moment. Literally, you do not have to come up here and talk to me. You don't have to shake my hand. You don't have to sign anything up here. It is right where you're sitting. You say, God, I, I believe you. I'll take it. I trust you. You will go to the kingdom. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Have you ever done this? Jesus fulfilled the law so that we could be saved. Jesus exalts the law because it reveals the heart of God. He exalts the law because it shows us our sinfulness and our desperate need for a Savior. You have to have that conviction. Nobody ever wants to get saved if they don't think they need to be saved. But the law reveals our need. I'm just wondering, right where you're sitting, 
Romans 20, Revelation 21, verse 8. This is God's Word. God's Word says, All liars will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's God's Word. That will happen. But God gave an escape from hell. The same God who promised that's going to happen also promised, If you'll believe my Son, if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. If you'll call on the name of the Lord, it means by faith. God, I don't understand all the promises, but God, I believe you. If you're not sure of your salvation, right where you're sitting, right now, the music's playing softly, right now, talk to God. God is in here. He, he knows your heart. He knows your thought. You say, I can't see him. He knows your thought. Talk to him as a real person. Right now, where you sit, do this. God, you're right. I am so sinful. I've sinned against you. God, I'm sorry. But God, I believe you. I believe Jesus died for me. Tell him right now. Like, put your faith in Jesus. Say, God, I believe Jesus died for me. And I believe it was enough to pay for all my sins. Now finish it right here. Here we go. Talk to God. I dare you. Say, God, you promised forgiveness, eternal life through Christ. So, God, right now, I trust Jesus right now. And I'm not trusting anything else. Jesus, you're my Lord. I take your salvation. I'm not moving my vocal cords. My soul and spirit's talking to you, God. I take your salvation at this moment. Christian, did God speak to you today? Have you been discarding the Old Testament? Are we guilty of picking and choosing which laws, commands, imperatives? It's the heart of God. His Spirit never leads you to live and go against His, His Word, any part of it. I'm not preaching in a way that we've got to all put ourselves under the yoke and the bondage of the law to try to earn our way to heaven. No. You love God and you read His Word. And don't relax it. Let Him speak. And let the Holy Spirit empower you to please Him. Father, I commit this time to you. It's a big passage. Big, big passage today. A lot of ramifications and I didn't cover it all. Lord, if I've said something that was amiss, I pray that you'd let that fall deftly. But Lord, if something's been said correctly and accurately, let it strike our hearts. Let it make even Christians desperate to run to you. God, I need a new heart. I need to love you more. I need to love your word, all of it more.